The Seahawks have added more weapons to their pass rush through the draft, but could they bring back an old friend to further reinforce their harassment of quarterbacks? Rob Rang and I'll be breaking it all down on a new episode of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, especially today with your patience. We apologize for the show starting a little later than scheduled. I'm actually seeing family in Indiana. And here in northern Indiana, in terms of Internet connections, some people are still with the Stone Age. So I had to do a little bit of relocating, but was able to find a good place to record. And so now we are in good shape. I also apologize if I sound nasally in Indiana. My allergies bother me as well. So it's a double whammy. Poor connections, allergies. We've got it all taken care of, though. So we're looking forward to talking about the return of a potential pass rusher that started his career in Seattle. We're going to be answering your mailbag questions and continuing our pick-by-pick profiles with Mike Morris, where he fits into the Seahawks defensive line as a rookie. Jam-packed episode coming your way, so let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. Back in 2019, one of the big moves the Seahawks made going into the offseason was dealing Frank Clark to the Kansas City Chiefs. They were able to get a first-round pick, a couple second-round picks. They were able to really stock the cabinet with draft capital, sending their top pass rusher to Kansas City. But really, Rob, ever since that trade, it has been an uphill climb for the Seahawks trying to find a viable replacement, looking for that guy that can consistently get after the quarterback. They've struggled to have double-digit sack guys. In fact, I'm not sure when the last one they had was on their edge rushing group after Frank Clark. So it has been a struggle replacing him. And here we are now with the calendar about to shift to June. And oh, by the way, Frank Clark is still a free agent, which has created some speculation at this point that maybe Frank Clark could find his way back to Seattle. And I do think it's an interesting discussion point because he's still a fairly young player that's had good productivity the last couple of years. He's won a couple of Super Bowls in Kansas City. There may be some value potentially bringing him in now when you know the price is not going to be near as high as it would have been a couple months ago. Yeah, and there's a lot of good pass rushers that are still available, Corbin, out there in free agency. I mean, Frank Clark is among them. Leonard Floyd, another Seahawks longtime nemesis, uh, is available. Frank Clark is one of the better players, I think, in terms of the fit for Seattle, in terms of his physical ability, his uh, playmaking kind of mentality, and just the the competitiveness with which he plays, and the, the salary point. Um, I do think that he, as you said, might be a little bit more willing to uh, to you know to come in um, and, and play at a you know the veteran minimum kind of a, of a possibility. At least that's something that I think that the Seahawks might be looking for um, if they are going to try to add to this pass rush. And and Frank Clark's a really good football player. I mean, anybody who's able to watch the, or look up on on YouTube and can see this here, um, if you look at his statistics, uh, you know, especially the the for uh, the the pass rush. Rate 
runway at 13.3 percent uh you know to me is one of the things that uh you know, that really kind of stands out about him i mean that, that's 34th in the league and, and that's a guy that you know it would be coming in on a rotational basis you're going to get the best that he has i think that when you look at seattle's pass rush i mean this is not a huge area of concern i think we're we're both really excited about what the seahawks um already have and then added uh, of course in the draft with with Derek hall but at the same time the, the seahawks have gone to the mentality or, or gone to the the strategy excuse me of using a veteran player as kind of a coach on the field and, and i could see them using uh, a frank clark or someone similar to him in, in that regard i i still think that shelby harris is a possibility along the defensive line as well as another candidate in, in this regard I, I do think that 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 there is some value in this i think that there are some very good football players who have not yet been signed that are available to them frank clark being a, a natural fit because again as i mentioned before i, I do think that he would fill in this uh, from a physical standpoint and then you go back to to what you let off of the conversation with corbin about when seattle did trade frank clark to the kansas city chiefs both john schneider p carroll and frank clark himself have all said that a possible reunion could happen there was a lot of mutual interest by both sides so i i don't think that this is just kind of a random conversation i think that this is uh a, a possible reunion in the making that the seahawks fans should be paying a little bit of attention to yeah, I think the fact now that, like I said, that we're about to June and he still has not been signed, anytime that happens with a player Frank Clark's caliber, especially the fact that he's not a 34, 35-year-old pass rusher, he's now past 30, but he's not over the hill, so to speak, and we saw what he did in the playoff of the Chiefs last year. He is still playing at a very high level. And so a player like that being available this late in the offseason – you do start to think, you know what, if he really wants to play, his best option might be to take a cheap deal on a one-year contract with a team like the Seahawks, who does know him well. And they don't necessarily have that alpha dog. Maybe Frank Clark could still end up being that guy for them in their pass rush. With that being said, I'm strongly against the idea of bringing him in, and it's not because I don't think he's a good player, but there's several factors at play here. The first thing foremost, and again, those listening, I apologize if I do not sound normal. I'm in Indiana, Dana Lions, and all kinds of stuff over, all over the place, and I'm pretty nasally here, so my apologies, but I feel fine. So anyway, reasons why I'm not necessarily on board with the idea of Frank Clark, first and foremost, where are you going to get the money? Because right now the Seahawks don't have much cap flexibility. They did already restructure Tyler Lockett. If you're going to do that with somebody like Quandre Diggs or Jamal Adams, you could open up space to go out and get one of these guys. But I can't see Frank Clark walking through the door on a league minimum deal. That is not going to happen with a player of his caliber, even this stage of the offseason. So money's the first issue. And second, You've invested so much high draft capital in pass rushers. Daryl Taylor was a second rounder. Boy, Mafe was a second rounder. You used a second rounder on Derek Hall. You've got Tyreek Smith, still a player that you are intrigued by. Alton Robinson's going to be back from injury. Uchenna Nwosu's only 26. I just listed six guys that are going to be rotating in on this pass rush that all still have untapped potential to varying degrees. If you bring in a guy like Frank Clark, that is going to take snaps away from several of those players, and that is going to stunt their development. I still think this is a team, even though they're an ascending team, to an extent they're still rebuilding certain parts of their roster. 
And so if you're not letting Derek Hall and Boy Mafe and Daryl Taylor get the reps they need to really get better, and you're giving them to Frank Clark, a player who, quite frankly, there's good numbers last year, but at the same time, the pass rush win rate was not near as good as it was a few years ago. He might be a player that isn't playing his very best football at this point. So I just have some reservations on those fronts about putting him on this team. And oh, by the way, he has historically been an average run defender at best. We know that's where the Seahawks need the most help on this football team rather than rushing the passer. So I just feel like even though this is a cool story to talk about, and I'm not going to completely rule out the possibility, I feel like Shelby Harris, as you mentioned, would fill a much bigger void for this football team than what they would have with their edge rushers by adding Frank Clark to an already crowded group. No, I very well said. I think that uh, it is a crowded group. I think that Frank Clark is absolutely past his prime. I mean, last year he had five sacks. He had five penalties last year. So, I mean, that, that's not exactly the ratio that you're looking for here. So uh, my, my point is more, Corbin, just that I, I do think that, uh, as you said, you kind of need that alpha dog. And Frank Clark has that. I also think that the, the Seahawks, again, have subscribed to that theory of, of having a player on the field that uh, can play that role of a coach. I think that he could push some buttons. I mean, Frank Clark is, a, you know, kind of a uh, an igniter in a way. I mean, he just has that kind of a, of a presence about him. He practices very hard. Uh, you know, we, we've seen the Seattle kind of go this route before. Um, you know, Adrian Peterson um, being a, a great example of that. And I'll, I'll mention another name. If we're going to talk about kind of Seahawks of the past that are still available out there, Jadavian Clowney would be another one who I think would kind of be a mix of the style of a Frank Clark and a Shelby Harris, who again, I think would make an awful lot of sense along that defensive line. That's one of the points I'd like to make here is that I don't think that Seattle has an overriding need or concern at this at this point. I just my biggest thing would be to continue to have those relationships with the veterans who are available just because there are going to be of course attrition during injury you know, injuries and things like that during training camp and there is some legitimate talent that's out there. I am as encouraged by Seattle's youth and talent as anybody but at the same time I also think there's got to be some veteran presence on this offense and defense uh, to be able to kind of to make this into a true team rather than just a collection of individual youth and talent. We're at the stage of the offseason where anything can happen, and a lot of these veterans that are on the free agent market, they're not going to be fetching big dollars because most of the teams in the NFL don't have much salary cap space. The Seahawks are far from alone, so you shouldn't rule out the possibility that Frank Clark could come back or somebody like Clowney or Shelby Harris, guys that have played in the Seahawks uniform, they could come back, but right now, that's something that's in the periphery. We'll see if it actually happens before the start of the 2023 season. Coming up next, we're going to be taking a look at a player that maybe could learn from somebody like Jadevian Clowney coming in as a fifth-round pick, Mike Morris. Where does he fit in transitioning full-time as a defensive tackle in Seattle? What can they expect from him right away with the Seahawks defensive line? We're going to get to that coming up next here on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. This episode is brought your way by Built Bar. If you're looking for a delicious snack but don't want all the sugar and calories, then you need the best-tasting protein bar ever, the Built Bar. If you don't want to compromise taste but you're looking for something that's a healthier snack, Built Bars and Built Puffs are the perfect solution. 100% real chocolate, perfect flavors such as churro, peanut butter, brownie, and cookies and cream. I'm not sure how they do it, but Built Bar continues to make candy bar tasting protein bars with amazing macros, only 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, and a whopping 17 
grams of protein. And now you don't have to wait to get a box. You can head over to your local Walmart or Sam's Club, and you can still get specialty flavors delivered to you at Built.com. Head over to Walmart today, get a four-bar box of cookies and cream, double chocolate or coconut puff. If you're close to Sam's Club, run in and grab a 13-bar box of their hip flavors, brownie batter puff and churro puff. You can thank me later. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. This is your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. For our everydayers out there, we're going to take a look at what's happened in the last couple practices at OTAs on our Wednesday episode, so you're not going to want to miss it as we dive into what's going on at the VMAC in the offseason program. Let's get to our rookie roundup here. We've been going pick by pick to this point. We're through the first four rounds, and Maybe one of the more intriguing picks that the Seahawks made on day three of this year's draft, Rob, was Mike Morris coming from Michigan, the first of two Michigan players that were selected in a five-pick span. They got Oluolutimi a few picks later, the center out of Michigan. And this guy, we've seen him on the field now, and he just looks like an NFL defensive tackle. 6'6", 295 pounds. He looks every bit 295 pounds out there on the field and not much fat on him. He's he's lean, he's muscular, just an a, a imposing build, but he hasn't played a lot of snaps inside. As, as uh, Matt Barry said on our show, the personnel director for the Seahawks, he did play more there two years ago, but last year he primarily was off the edge, and so that has created some questions about what the fit looks like for him transitioning inside with the Seahawks. Is that going to be something that holds him back early or is he going to be able to make that transition quickly and be able to play significant snaps for the Seahawks on day one? Uh, you know, it, it's a great question. I, I think it could be a combination of both, Corey, but I think that uh, that there is a scenario in which Mike Morris, as a fifth-round pick rookie, um, is able to get carve out some significant playing time this, this season. Uh, I also think that the more likely scenario is, is that he is going to be asked to, to kind of just continue to bulk up and to fully transition inside that defensive tackle role. But let me kind of talk about the more uh, exciting possibility, and that is – if he really does show enough burst off the edge to be able to play that hybrid role that we saw Michael Bennett and others play for the Seahawks in the past. And, and I think that there's there's flashes on tape of him out of the two-point stance, so rushing upfield um, as a stand-up pass rusher, and he shows a little bit of a uh, dip and, and, and some coordination with his hands to rip through uh, to spin off of contact uh, you know he's, he's got some athletic ability to him and then as you mentioned I mean 6'6", 295 pounds he's got those 33 inch arms I mean he almost looks a little bit like we talked about Jadavian Clowney a little bit ago and again this is a man who's 30 pounds heavier than Clowney is but still the, the, just the, the very very long arms the broad shoulders I mean he just physically overwhelms opponents at times and so I, I'm really intrigued by his upside as a true interior defensive lineman. Um, I, I or whether well, if you want to call it a true interior defensive lineman, or is that two gap and defensive tackle? My point is, a, a being you know having to be on the line of scrimmage, not being an edge guy. 
that's where, as you said, um, he played a significant amount of time. What was really Michigan's most impactful front seven defender a year ago, the defensive lineman of the year, I believe, in the, in the Big Ten uh, for Michigan a year ago. But that was the role that he played. But as you mentioned, Matt Berry uh, talked about that he played inside before. I think that it's going to take some time for him to be able to do that against NFL competition. But I do think that he's got a great deal of upside. I think the real the real concern that I have, at least watching the film with this kid, playing off the edge was not as big of a deal, but we talked about him being 6'6". There's not a lot of interior defensive linemen that are that tall, and it does create natural leverage issues. And I think that is a bigger problem when you're playing the three-tech position and when you're having to potentially deal with double teams. You have to be able to play with a little lower center of gravity to be able to take on those blocks. And so that's something that I think is going to be an adjustment for him after playing a lot of two-point stand-up, playing off the edge. He didn't have to worry about that as much. So that's something that I think the team is going to have to really coach him up on but at the same time I don't want our listeners to mistake this that I'm not saying that he's the next Jadevian Clowney at all because Jadevian Clowney was a number one overall pick for a reason much better athletic metrics coming into the league he's a lighter player not everything matches up but just the way that you could move him around potentially Clowney played some as a stand-up rusher in the a gap when he was with the Houston Texans I could see Seattle doing some stuff like that with Mike Morris because even though he's not a twitchy enough athlete to play off the edge consistently in the NFL I think in that one gap position where he's going to get centers and guards his athleticism is more than adequate enough to be able to cause problems there and I think in the three tech position you're going to see that too with the penetrating ability the quick hands the underrated power i expect he's going to play at over 300 pounds when it's all said and done i think he's going to be in that 305 310 range which is 66 is really not that big of a guy for an nfl defensive lineman so it's not like we're talking about adding bulk and losing more athleticism i think he's going to be able to move just fine we've seen that on the practice field so i think the leverage is the biggest thing for me but what really jumps out to me i know a lot of fans were wondering why are we drafting a guy that was playing off edge last year and saying we're going to move it inside and relative athletic score i'm going to admit i have an addiction to this website because i love the way that they set up different position groups and you could put a prospect like mike morris into their simulator and you could see where would he stack up athletically against defensive tackles where would he stack up against edge rushers and so you look at him as an edge rob he scored a 4.78 out of 10 that's less than the 50 percent percentile here that we're talking about he scored poorly in the vertical broad jump shuttle three cone the 40 yard dash he's had poor scores in all of those metrics as an edge rusher but then when you look at him as a defensive tackle that score jumps up to 8.44 which is an elite score for the position and he had mostly greens which means elite grades in the 40 yard dash the three cone even his shuttle that was considered good at at 4.85 seconds that kind of paints the picture for you the kind of athlete that we're talking about here and why the seahawks when they drafted him said hey you don't have to push yourself away from the table anymore we want you to be a big guy because that is where you are at your best maximizing your athleticism and your strength 
No, exactly. I mean, he's still still a pup. I mean, he's just growing into his body at this point. You know, and yep. we kind of talked about this before with, uh, you know, Anthony Bradford, the guard from LSU who had grown up in Michigan. I mean, it's the exact opposite case here. Um, obviously, uh, you know, with, with Mike Morris, he played his college ball at Michigan, but he grew up in the state of Florida. Um, his dad was an offensive lineman for the Florida State Seminoles. And, you know, again, it, it kind of speaks to the mental toughness um the, the the willingness to to kind of go off of his own path make his own story um that i think that also appealed to the seahawks uh, about mike morris and who he is um just as as a person so yeah again i think it's a physical ability that they are intrigued by i think it's just the the, the mentality that they that they are intrigued by um and i you know i, I you mentioned that we're not so sure we want to use that comparison to Jadavia and Clowney. I, I certainly don't, but I, I do think that the, the, the positional versatility, the ability to create some interesting one-on-one -on -one kind of matchups, I think Mike Morris in the fifth round offers that. And, and so I'm just really intrigued by, by what the, the different type of matchups and scenarios in which Seattle likes to use Mike Morris. And if he's going to play with that kind of physicality and nastiness that he's going to need to if he's going to play primarily inside. As you mentioned, your concern was leverage. I don't want to say it's toughness, it's grit. Uh, I think that's kind of simplifies it too much. I just think that the closer contact is requires a different type of a mindset. And, and so I'm curious to see if Mike Morris is going to be able to truly acclimate to the inside as much as, as I think the Seahawks are going to ask him to do so. And that's why I think that we should expect Mike Morris from the outset, at least early in his rookie season, is going to mostly be playing in passing situations because that is going to allow him to be able to take advantage of what he did at Michigan playing inside. I just don't know that he right away is going to be ready to play a bunch of those first and second downs where teams are going to be running the football down his throat. Now, I think in time, as he gets bigger and he gets stronger, accolades to that position, that he will be able to do that because I do see the physicality on film playing off edge. I just don't know what we're going to see physicality-wise. As you said, it's a different ball game when you are playing in the heart of the trenches than it is when you're playing off edge, off tackle. And so that is going to be something to watch as we get into his rookie season. But I do think this is a guy that offers a lot of intrigue for a fifth-round pick. And I think there's a chance he could develop into a really solid rotational piece for the Seahawks, potentially as a rookie, at least in pass rushing situations. All right, 12s, it's time for our weekly mailbag segment. We didn't get to one last week. We took the holiday off as well. So a great opportunity to tackle your questions here. So let's get to it. Our first question, and this one is for Rob coming from David Pugh. Do you think the Seahawks are one of the top 10 most improved teams from last year in the NFL? I know we've talked about a lot of their individual moves, Rob, but you've had a chance as a draft analyst to look at what every team in the league has done. You've looked at free agency leading up to the draft for those draft decisions. Do the Seahawks have one of the 10 most improved teams in the NFL, in your opinion, and why? No, I think that they absolutely do. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, just bringing back Geno Smith, I think that that created that baseline, right? Uh, and, and then we know that the biggest area of concern is Seahawks fans and Seahawks followers know that the line of scrimmage was a huge area of concern. You you, you brought in a, a starter uh, at center in terms of free agency. You brought in a, you know the most accomplished center in the college draft. Um, you got the best wide receiver in the draft, in the opinion of a lot of people, the best corner in the draft, in the opinion of a lot of people. Um, and, you know, and then in the defensive line, 
and um, being able to bring back Dream on Jones. To me, that was the big move that, that made everything massive. Uh, the Bobby Wagner move, I think, is the one that gets all the play. I uh, mean, I understand. I, I think that it's it's huge, but I, I think that the, the really bringing in Draymond Jones and, and just the, the the flexibility that allows you along the defensive line, um, I, I think, was was huge because that allows again the junkyard dog kind of a guy that is a Jaron Reed to be able to kind of play the role that that he should be playing as a little bit more of a compliment. So, one hundred percent, I believe that the Seahawks are among the ten teams that improve the most. I ju- I think from a let me let me preface that though. I, I think that they're the, among the ten teams in the NFL that improve the most in terms of talent, in terms of team speed, those types of things. Whether that translates to more victories, whether that translates to a Super Bowl run, that's a whole different conversation. But I feel very strongly that Seattle is absolutely among the most improved teams in all the league based on their free agent additions and the draft. Our second question here coming from Chase Rydell. Who do you think is the most indispensable player on this team? Which guy would be the most difficult to replace if he went down? So I will just say this, Robin. I'm sure you will nod your head. I mean, typically, you're going to say the quarterback in this instance. And I think Geno Smith would be near the top of the list for the Seattle Seahawks if we're talking about this. But I actually saw Mike Salk from Seattle Sports talking about this question and he threw out Draymond Jones as the most indispensable or irreplaceable player on Seattle's roster. And I would tend to subscribe to that because what do you do if he goes down with the losses you already had at that position and how much money you invested in him? That being said, I'm not going to put him at number one. He is going to be number two on my list I'm going to go, this is going to shock people in terms of going into this season, but I'm going to say it's Charles Cross at left tackle because Stone Forsyth, maybe he can come in and give you some spot starts there. But we've seen what happens to the Seahawks throughout the Russell Wilson era when they were playing musical chairs at left tackle. It can completely self-destruct your offense. And so I would actually put Charles Cross first on there. Protecting the blind side is crucial, especially with a quarterback like Geno Smith. He can run the ball, but he likes to throw from the pocket. If you have a really bad situation at left tackle, that can completely erode everything you're trying to do on offense from the run game, from pass protection. So I would go Charles Cross and then Draymond Jones second just because the hits that they've had depth-wise and experience-wise at that position. But I just think left tackle, it's one of the most important positions. And no offense to Stone Forsyth or Jay Curhan or anybody else that would step in at that left tackle position, but there would be a big downgrade there if there was an injury. And that is a position you can't afford for that to happen. Our third question here coming from Cody Smith. Why did the Seahawks sign Julian Love instead of using that money for interior offensive line or defensive line? Their needs at corner and safety were way less than that in the trenches. This still seems to be a big question for the 12s out there, Rob. I, I kind of it was a big question for me as well. Um, you know, and I, I watched a little bit more tape on Julian Love. Uh, I kind of asked some questions um, when we were out there at, at VMAC as well and tried to just kind of get some sense of it. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I believe. 
I, I believe the Seahawks viewed Ryan Neal as a, a, a box safety, as a guy that wasn't going to really have the wheels to kind of be able to play that true center field type. Quandrick Diggs, of course, can do that very, very well. He, he's been doing it at, at an all-pro, Pro Bowl level now for several years. But he's also an aging player, an undersized player. Um, and I think the Seattle recognized some vulnerability there, um, obviously with Jamal Adams and his durability questions. Um, Julian Love's ability to play either of those safety spots as well as drop down and play the nickel spot at a high level. Uh, I think that they just viewed him as a as a very versatile player that gave them an awful lot of versatility or excuse me, a very versatile player that gave them the ability to kind of do all kinds of different matchups and things like that. Uh, and, you know, and so I just think that, that that's the biggest reason why they went with Julian Love is they just viewed him as the better player on their defense. Next question here coming from Jason. He tweets, and this one was to me, do you think the Seahawks are more likely to hold a third quarterback on the roster with the new Brock Purdy rule? So I will say this, 12s, it is not called the Brock Purdy rule, but that's probably the big reason why it now exists because of what happened in that NFC Championship game last year where the 49ers ended up getting down to their third quarterback who they didn't have on the roster at that point. And so... This rule, just to explain for our listeners that haven't heard about it, teams can now have a third quarterback available to them that doesn't count against the 46 players that are active for game day. But that quarterback has to be on the 53-man roster. So it's not like you have 54 players available to you. It's still is somebody that counts against that 53-man limit. But I do think that a lot of teams are going to take advantage of this. I am curious from Seattle's perspective because they do have a quality backup that has starting experience in Drew Locke. The only other quarterback that they have that maybe has a chance to make this team in this scenario is Holton Aylers, the undrafted rookie out of East Carolina. Now, Pete Carroll has spoken glowingly about this kid but he's still an undrafted free agent that's got plenty of issues he's going to have to work through to be able to play at the NFL level. So I don't know if this necessarily is going to change the way Seattle does things, but I do think that it at least is going to create some conversations for Carroll and his coaching staff. Do we want to take advantage of this rule to have 47 players active in case we had a freakish day where Geno Smith and Drew Locke both get hurt. I do think it at least warrants a conversation. I don't know that it changes Seattle's viewpoint, though, where they have typically only carried two quarterbacks on the roster in general. Rob, I know that you want to chime in on this one. Yeah, I, I think it's just really interesting. Uh, anything that allows you an extra player on game day, I'm all in on. Um, you know, and so I, I, that's where I'm intrigued by this. Uh, as you said, Corbin, it, for Seattle to have a third quarterback available to them on game day, then that player has to make their 53-man roster, and that has not happened very often during the Pete Carroll era. So Holt Naylor's is going to, ha- or somebody else is going to have to be pretty damn impressive um, to justify Seattle making, or, you know, that. You that using their roster spot in that way, but again, I, I think that the the allowing you a little bit more positional versatility um, on, on on game day, a little bit more just you know extending your roster on game day is interesting, and, and so I I'm just going to be fascinated to see how NFL teams are going to do this. Again, we we talked about this a little bit prior to the draft, you know, and I was kind of, you know, championing this idea of going with like a running quarterback, like an Anthony Richardson, for example, I would not be surprised at all, Corbin, if you don't see some teams that are going to use that third quarterback option to try to get themselves a running quarterback option, you might see a little bit more teams, you know, really trying to diversify their offense against,
again, exactly the way the Philadelphia Eagles did a year ago with Jalen Hurts and these rugby scrum kind of things. So I don't know that the Seahawks are going to do that. The Holden Aylers is an athlete. Um, and so perhaps it, we, we could be seeing the NFL, uh, you know, making a pretty significant move here um, with, with something that I think kind of slipped under the, under the rug for a lot of people. I do think that ability to have that insurance policy, like I said, I think Pete Carroll and company discuss it. I don't know if it leads to changes from their prior philosophy, but having that extra spot, even if it is for a player that can't play unless your first two quarterbacks are hurt, you know what? You, you don't know when that situation is going to happen to you. So I could see the Seahawks potentially being a team that at least takes a deep look. Is that something that's worth it to us to take advantage of? Robin Solari, are you guys going to be at open training camps? We need better coverage of how these guys are doing in practices. It seems like both of the underreported topics are made by media. So I would just say this, Robin, for one thing, and I'm not going to dive too much into this, and Rob is probably just going to nod his head on this, but we have limitations on what we are allowed to report during OTAs as well as training camp. It's a lot more training camp. Now, when it's an open training camp practice, we have a lot more flexibility because there are fans there that are able to see things. But when they're open only to media, we have strict we have strict uh, rules in terms of what we can report, when we can report. And so that is something to keep in mind. I know in my case, I do the best I can to try to report as much information. I know the rest of the guys in our beat do that as well, but – you know, I guess that's what I'm just saying is we try our best with the information that we're allowed to share throughout the offseason training camp. And and I know Rob's just in there nodding his head, but that's really the reality of the situation. We do the best that we can with what the Seahawks allow us to do. And every NFL team has their own different ways of approaching that. Some teams are a little bit more willing to allow reporters to report things. Some are a lot tougher than what the Seahawks are. Every team is given a little bit of flexibility in terms of how much they're allowed uh, to let reporters and other media members unleash to the public for consumption. That's just the way that the NFL operates. And the last question here for Rob, Jeremy says, who do you think has the most riding on this offseason program for the Seattle Seahawks? Um, I think it's got to be Jamal Adams. I mean, I think that from a financial standpoint, certainly. I think from just his potential impact on the Seahawks defense and and therefore their their season, uh, you know, I think it's got to be Jamal Adams. I mean, obviously, I, I want to start the conversation with the quarterback, and, and I think it's critical that Geno Smith um, proves that last year was no fluke. Um, and I think there's going to be plenty of criticism out there. If he starts off the season poorly, then, you know, I think that, that, that this could, you know, absolutely snowball and it wind up being a very disappointing year for Seattle. So I think that you have to start with a Geno Smith, but I have a great deal of confidence in what I saw from Geno Smith. And again, from the, the feedback that I was getting from the, um, the, the Seahawks personnel while at the VMAC, I mean, I kind of talked about the idea of, of Seattle taking a quarterback. And when I mentioned it, you know, some of the guys kind of scoffed at me before the draft. And it was very clear that was not the direction that they were going to be going. Um, so again, I, I think that Geno Smith has earned the, the fact earn the, the the idea that somebody else sh is going to have to be you know, kind of lay that or play the the role of uh you know the burden really of, of the expectation and to me that has got to be Jamal Adams yeah for me in this particular question I would actually say Daryl Taylor and we talked about Frank Clark and his potential fit earlier in the season but he lost his starting job four games of the year last year because of his run defense. Now, Pete Carroll has said that he looks bigger and stronger seeing him on the field. It looks like that checks out. 
but is he going to be more effective against the run game? If he's not, you now have Derek Hall to go with Boy Mafe to push him for playing time, and those guys are both going to get it done against the run. You expect they're going to improve as pass rushers, especially Boy Mafe going to year two. They have turned up the heat on him. He's a restricted free agent next year because he missed his rookie season, but the Seahawks are going to be looking at this year. Is this a guy that is a long-term piece of the puzzle for us? And so I think these next couple months are going to be critical for him to be able to get off to a fast start for this season, and hopefully he can get a starting job and he can hold on to it. He can make improvements against the run because if he can do that, I think the Seahawks will be willing to pay him. If not, they're going to be looking at Boye Mafe. They're going to look at Derek Hall and say, hey, we've made other investments. These guys are under contract for the next couple of years. We're going to choose to go this direction. So I actually think Daryl Taylor has a lot riding on this offseason program and really this 2023 season in general. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts as well as YouTube to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to take a look at what's transpired the last couple of practices at Seahawks OTA, some updates on offense and defense, and we'll continue our rookie roundup as well with the second fifth-round pick, Olu Oluwatimi. Make sure that you're listening in. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Go Hawks.